Hi, hi guys, uh, welcome to Anything But Catholic, episode 11. I am your apologist, David Cook, um, Catholic apologist for the faith. The reason why I'm recording this here and why this is going to be recorded in this format is because we had some technical difficulties this week. I had some issues with my computer and I had to borrow a computer. Um, and so everything is definitely far from ideal right now. So basically what's going to be happening this week, we did recently switch to the two 30-minute model. Um, we have two episodes of approximately 30 minutes each week. And normally speaking, Chris and I are going to be in both of them, but due to the technical issues we both had, well, really that I had technical issues, and so, in order to make sure the episodes get out on time, we decided to record them separately. Chris is going to be recording the topical episode at some point, and hopefully publishing it on Monday. And then I'm going to be handling the Q&A portion by myself, and this is going to be published as just an audio on Wednesday. So, without further ado, we have three questions from listeners today that I'm going to be answering. Um, normally, Chris would ask me these, but I'm going to ask them to myself because of the aforementioned stuff. And then after I do that, I'm going to give you guys a brief update on the upcoming debate with John Wesley Bush III. And then I'm going to be done. All right. So first question is, question, why should people get to go to heaven who live wicked lives and then simply confess their sins before death? How is this fair? Now, I don't necessarily know who asked this question, but I find it kind of interesting. I believe it was an anonymous question. But I find it kind of interesting that a Protestant would ask this. Because it seems very much to be the opposite of what you would expect. Normally, Protestants complain that we believe in justification by works. We believe you can earn your way to heaven, even though all of that's not true. I think it's very interesting that somebody would ask this, well, how is it fair that somebody can repent at the last moment and still go to heaven? I, I think before I even answer this, I'm just going to say, I think this is a powerful way of showing that we don't believe in justification by works, not in the way you would think of it. We certainly believe in justification by theosis, justification by being made like God, being actually transformed into the likeness of God, being united with God. But it's not by works. It's not like you earn it. You can repent at the last moment and still be saved. Now, I don't recommend you try that. Um, and I'll get into why in a minute, but it is certainly possible. Um, we know about the thief on the cross, St. Dismas. Um, he's regularly mentioned and used as theological arguments to prove all sorts of things that he'd be rolling around in his grave if he knew that he was being used for. But at the end of the day, it is true. The thief on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when, I, when you come into your kingdom. And he was saved through that last-minute act of repentance. He lived a horrible life, and he was saved. God desires the salvation of all, and he gave us this life in order to find it. And he gave us his grace that if we cooperate with it, we can find it. Um, it's not true that God desires the salvation of only the elect, as the Calvinists would have it. He desires the salvation of everybody. Um, so it's not an issue of strictly deserving or not deserving. Um, it's more like we are racing toward a cliff at breakneck speed, and God is warning us, like, you know, follow me, follow me, don't do that. And ultimately, when you die, I mean, that's it, you fell off the cliff. Um, but until then, you can always avert your path. 
salvation is by grace um protestants are right about that they get some things wrong but they are right that we're saved by grace and not by works of the law paul says that it's not an issue of strict fairness um jesus did die for the salvation of sinners now again the kind of calvinist one-to-one idea of like well jesus paid an exact penalty for each sin that's not quite accurate but jesus did die to satisfy the wrath of god the father um he died in the place of sinners such that god could save us despite our sins and being in with us despite our sins um there is still purgatory um so short of a perfect act of contrition which is not what this question is asking about it's asking about confession which would at least allow for the possibility of what we call imperfect contrition there's still purgatory so it's not like this protestant conception of like well if adolf hitler um confessed to a priest right before he died he just instantly goes to heaven no there would still be a period of purgation there would be some suffering involved it wouldn't be vindictive but it would be a purifying fire um and i don't know if it's a literal fire or not i'm not so much getting into that but um at least in symbolic terms if not in literal terms it is a purifying fire and that's gonna hurt um but it's because but the issue is because again ultimately our souls are moving in one direction or the other if we're in a state of grace we are ultimately moving towards union with god if we're not in a state of grace we're moving away from union with god and once we die our wills are fixed that's it so if a soul dies wanting to be in union with god ultimately god is going to get them there and by wanting i mean being in a state of grace being in cooperation with grace and if that's the case god's ultimately going to get them there now it might be a long and uh perilous road but they are going to get there um because once we die our wills are fixed one way or the other so either they will be saved because they have repented even if that's through a long hard purgatory or their wills are against god in which case they'll be damned forever um and that is the crazy thing about free will we have that choice we have the choice to choose to accept or reject god's love forever a couple other things i will cite um one the parable in matthew 21 through 16 um you have a parable where um basically you have day laborers working in a vineyard um some of them start working at the very beginning of the day and others wait until the last hour in order to get hired but they all receive the same denarius now it's not necessarily saying it's not necessarily saying there's no um additional um closeness with god that comes from living a full life of service to him um there are different degrees of reward in heaven we've talked about that on the show before but ultimately at the end of the day jesus is saying you know god can be generous to who he wills and whether you are a cradle catholic were baptized um as an infant and have lived a catholic life your entire life or whether you're somebody who truly repents on his deathbed you are going to attain the beatific vision and jesus basically rebukes the pharisees for saying that would be unfair the final thing i will say though because a lot of this can seem like it could lead towards the idea of presumption like um you know well i can just kind of live a life that's not really that uh holy and then in the end i can um but right before i die i can confess my sins and as long as i confess my sins or before i die i will be saved people can think like that but there are a couple things number one i forgot which saint it was there was a saint who said people usually die as they live in other words meaning if you are living a life where you are consistently confessing your sins you're going you're striving to avoid sin you're going to mass you're praying the rosary you're living a catholic life 
you don't need to be paranoid that like, oh, well, I might slip into a mortal sin and go to hell. Now, we have to have a healthy fear, but we don't have to live like we're walking on eggshells. You know, nobody's damned by accident. And the flip side of that is that it's very hard to repent at the last minute. If you live a life where you harden your heart to God's grace, it's very hard. It would take an extraordinary act of God to be able to bring you to the point where at the last minute you're like, no, 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 I reject these sins I've been embracing my entire life. I'm going to turn to God. Jerome says something like, for out of every 100,000 people who live lives of sin until death, scarcely one will be brought to repentance. So, St. Jerome's, it's very hard to kind of make that about face at the last moment. So, at the end of the day, what I would say is, you know, don't be presumptuous. If you are a Catholic, continue on the path to the faith, um, because you're not guaranteed another day. At the same time, don't begrudge your neighbor the fact that he can repent later than you did, because God is full of mercy, and he wants all souls to be saved. At the end, it's not about fairness. It's about God's mercy, and we do believe in God's grace being preeminent. Even though we do believe we have to cooperate, we believe God's grace is the predominant force in our salvation, and without God's grace, we can do nothing. So, that is my answer to that question. Now, I have two more questions. One of them is this. What are the teachings of the Catholic Church based on? What is the magisterium? Now, this is another anonymous question, and this is multifaceted, so let me kind of break it down. So, there are three basic places that Catholic teaching comes from. That is scripture, tradition, and magisterium. And I'll explain what each of those are. Before I do that, I will point out, some Catholics believe that all of tradition and magisterium are at least implicit in the scriptures, while others would hold to more of a partum partum view, which is to say that some of what we believe comes from oral tradition, purely from oral tradition, other parts come from written tradition. I personally don't think it's necessary that everything come implicitly from scripture, but I will acknowledge that some saints believed and argued in this way. Um, I would also say that when you really look at scripture properly and you understand the typology involved and you understand the way it was historically understood, pretty much everything we teach does come from somewhere in there. It's not like anything is really like, well, where the heck did you get that? Um, no, it's all, it's pretty much all implicit in, in the scriptures. But at the same time, if there was a teaching that was maybe only taught orally, that wouldn't really bother me. So, scripture is the 73 books of the canon. Protestants have seven fewer books because they were removed. And that's a complex discussion, so I won't fully break it down. But the bottom line is, did the church make the 73 books scripture? No. Um, God did. But it's only through the church's guidance that we can distinguish between what books are canonical and which ones are not. There were various disputes about this throughout history, and I've gone through this in other places. But, like... The Didache was often tied to the Apostles, and some people thought that was Scripture. Some people thought the first letter of uh, Pope Clement was Scripture. Some people thought that, you know, the Epistle of Barnabas was Scripture. Other people didn't believe Hebrews was Scripture. Other people didn't believe Revelation was Scripture. And I can go on and on. So the bottom line is, it's not something where it's just obvious by reading it that you automatically know, well, this is God-breathed or it's not. Ultimately, we needed a church authority to tell us, okay, here are the books that God-breathed. And the rest of them, while they're not uh, at that level where, like, individually they can't err, those books still do have high levels of authority in the church. The Didache is not scripture, so theoretically it could have an error, but it still has a very high place in the church, as does First Clement. 
as do the epistles of St. Ignatius of Antioch, and I, I could go on. So what is the magisterium? Well, the magisterium is basically what gives structure to tradition, because ultimately, if you just had lower T tradition, it would just be all the things that happened in the past, and you can't really get an authority out of that. Marcion was a gross heretic, and he lived a long time before there was, you know, the Council of Nicaea. So, so without a magisterium, you could make the argument, well, could somebody appeal to his tradition? And the answer is no, because the magisterium ultimately tells us, you know, what traditions are legit, what traditions really come from the apostles, and which ones don't. Now, the magisterium, you know, it doesn't invent new doctrines, and I think that's really important. It only gives us clarity regarding what God wants us to believe. Um, pope St. Pius X, who was a very strong pope against the heresy of modernism, wrote an encyclical called Lamentabili Sane, and one of the things that he taught in that encyclical was that revelation constituting the object of the Catholic faith was completed with the apostles. He condemned the opposite idea. So basically what this is saying is, like, when, when a pope defines a dogma ex cathedra, and I'll get into that in a minute, or when a Catholic council makes a decision about what we're obligated to believe, it's not inventing a new doctrine. Rather, it's taking what the apostles already taught, and it's interpreting it for us such that we know with definitive certainty how it is to be understood. Because if we read the Bible on our own, or we read even the Church Fathers on our own, there is a chance that we'll misunderstand what they mean. Now, it's not to say we can't understand anything about them, but ultimately our reading is flawed. We can misinterpret them. And so the magisterium gives us additional clarity regarding how those things are to be understood. So the church teaches us in three different ways. Well, two and a half. Um, so there's the extraordinary magisterium, and then there's the ordinary magisterium. And then the ordinary magisterium is broken down into ordinary and universal and just ordinary. So what does that mean? Well, the extraordinary magisterium is basically when the church dogmatizes something. That is to say, they either hold a council or the pope just by himself defines a doctrine that we are absolutely bound to believe. Now, again, this is not made up. These are things that were already taught in the tradition. But the church specifically makes an act of exercising authority to bind us to believe a particular thing. Now, one thing I will note is that Ex Cathedra has very narrow criteria. If you look at the First Vatican Council, it explains what a pope has to do in order to bind us to believe something Ex Cathedra. There are only two times where we can clearly state that that's happened. There are some controversy about some older statements, but for the most part, there are really only two times in church history that we can point to where we can say, yes, the pope definitively spoke infallibly on his own. The ordinary means through the which the church teaches us via extraordinary magisterium is via a council which is convened with the Pope and all the bishops to condemn a heresy. So, these doctrines are not just made up. I, I, I have to keep saying this because it's something a lot of Protestants get wrong. They think, well, we just make up doctrines. That's not the case. These doctrines are taught in the scriptures or in the early saints, period. The church is just giving us clarity that, the, that we can know that that's what they were saying. So, for example, let's look at the Immaculate Conception, because a lot of Protestants bring this up and say, well, nobody believed that until the 19th century, and ultimately that's not the case. Um, if you read the encyclical Ineffabilis Deus, which includes the Ex-Cathedra statement that binds all Catholics to believe in the Immaculate Conception, you can see that Pope Pius IX argues for the doctrine from the scriptures. 
He argues for the doctrine from the teachings of the early saints and the early church fathers. He argues it from the teachings of the medieval doctors and ultimately putting all of that data into his mind. On that basis, he dogmatizes it and says, you know what, this debate is over. This is what you have to believe or you're anathema, you're out of the church, you're a heretic. At this point, because it's already been settled through substantial debate and at the end in the end the pope put his foot down and said you know this is the final word on this topic now this is not this idea of ex cathedra is not designed that the pope can just make up new doctrines on the fly vatican one specifically says this the pope was not given this power in order to create new uh dogmas but it is a mechanism by which the church can definitively settle an issue that was formerly controversial um, it's like you see with the Council of Jerusalem. Um, I, I've talked about this before. Even the early Council of Jerusalem, you know, there was a controversy. Now, ultimately, it's God that says you don't have to be circumcised anymore. But how do we know that? Well, because the church held a council and Peter stood up and spoke and made a decision. So, again, there are two different ways the Pope can definitively settle an issue. One is through an ecumenical council, where the church binds everyone to a decision as a group in a council. The second way is the Pope can speak ex cathedra, which is very rare, and there are very specific criteria for doing it, but it is an option that the Pope has. Now, not everything we have to believe is in the Extraordinary Magisterium, that is, either Council or ex cathedra statement. There is also something called the Ordinary and Universal Magisterium, and that is also infallible. Now, what that means is essentially this. If the Church has consistently everywhere taught the same view, that's still binding, even if there hasn't been a specific statement about it or a certain statement a specific statement condemning everybody who rejected it so the idea is most often summarized by a fifth century saint saint vincent of Lorenz, who in essence was basically saying you know everybody if everybody tries to interpret the bible for themselves it leads to chaos everybody has a different interpretation the heretics and the non-heretics both think they have the right one so ultimately we have to believe that which has been taught always everywhere and by all and i think this is a really strong explanation for how the catholic church is different than protestant denominations because protestant denominations you'll have arguments about scripture that are almost always disconnected from what was taught in the early centuries so one example what's an example of the ordinary and universal magisterium well i'll give you one that's pretty clear cut and that is the issue of contraception you can't find a specific bible text that says in so many words thou shalt not use contraceptives I, I believe i could argue for the conclusion from the bible but there's not a passage that straight up says it such that you couldn't debate it there's also not a council or an ex cathedra statement that says thou shalt not use contraceptives but if you look through church history through the first 19 centuries of the church there's no dispute about this um contraceptives are considered contrary to the way the sex act is supposed to be performed and i'm not going to fully unpack that because it would take a long time but the bottom line is this is something where everybody just knows that the Catholic Church is against contraceptives because it's been taught universally by the Church forever, even though there's no specific definitive statement about it. So that's an example of ordinary universal magisterium. And again, you are bound to follow the things that are taught in the ordinary and universal magisterium, even if there is not a specific ex-cathedra statement or a specific council. We are bound to those things. Now, there is such a thing as the ordinary magisterium, which is not universal, and technically that would consist of any authoritative teaching by a pope or any bishop, so like a papal encyclical, a papal letter, and so on. Now, these, and also by bishops, not even just the pope, um, bishops can teach authoritatively as well. Now, these things do have authority. We can't just dismiss them mindlessly, but they are not infallible, and they can be rejected if they contradict a stronger tradition. So, for instance... If you have a dogma that says there's no salvation outside the church, and then you have a pope say, well, 
atheists can be saved, even if he says that in an encyclical. Well, he's ultimately wrong, and we can unpack that more. The bottom line is he's wrong because he's contradicting a higher teaching of the church. Um, and we had, and this would not have been an encyclical, but it theoretically could have been, you know, when Pope Francis recently said, you know, um, gay civil unions are okay. We look at the universal teaching and tradition of the church, and we see that's not what the church has taught. And, and so we can reject it. Now, we respect the Holy Father, we pray for him, but when he's wrong, he's wrong. Um, and there can be errors in papal statements that do not um, rise to the level of an ex-cathedra statement or an ecumenical council. And since those things are not protected by papal infallibility, which is narrow, if we do see errors in some of those papal teachings, we should not see that as a threat to our faith. We should just be like, okay, the Pope is a man. Yes, he is our teacher, but he's a man. He can be wrong. We pray for him. We move on. We don't get bogged down with the details of like, well, how can this be possible that, you know, our shepherd can be wrong? It can happen. So to really unpack this up, I think that we, well, here's what we need to know. We have to believe what's taught in the sacred scriptures. Anything that's taught by all of the church fathers, we have to believe. Um, anything that's taught in the 20 ecu um, dogmatic ecumenical councils, um, Vatican II is unique, and I've talked about that before, but I, I'm not going to unpack it fully now. But all of the councils prior to Vatican II, which were dogmatic, we are obliged to believe the dogmatic statements in those councils. We are obliged to believe the two ex-cathedra statements on Marian doctrine, um, the Immaculate Conception by Pope Pius IX and the Assumption of Mary by Pope Pius XII. And we are obliged to believe the sexual morality of the Catholic Church that has been taught through the ordinary and universal magisterium. So things like abortion is a sin, homosexuality is a sin, fornication, masturbation, porn, contraception, and so on. I think these are like the really basics of it. If you, ha if you have down the scriptures, the unanimous teaching of the early church, the 20 councils, the two ex-cathedra statements, and I'm obviously not saying that everyone has to memorize all those things. I think you just need to know that those are the basic things you have to believe. The scriptures, the fathers, the councils, and those general, the ex-cathedra statements, and those general statements about sexual morality that have always been taught throughout Catholic history. If you can kind of wrap your mind around that and get that into your head, you're on the right track to understanding how Catholic teaching works. Um, we're not all called to be theologians. And you can go deeper than that. This is a very 101 explanation of how this works. Um, I'm definitely not claiming this is exhaustive, but that's the 101 explanation of the Catholic Magisterium, what it is and how it works. Okay, so we have one more question to answer today, and that is this. One of my Calvinist friends said St. Augustine was a Calvinist. Obviously he wasn't, but if you wanted more material for your podcast, how would you respond? And this is from Luke TK, who from what I understand is Eastern Orthodox, so he knows that... Um, uh, St. Augustine was not a Calvinist. Nonetheless, I, I think, so to briefly get into this issue, I think that people who bring this up assume that the only component of Calvinism is the issue of predestination. And for the sake of argument, let's even give them that. Let's say that Augustine believed in devil predestination. God created some souls for heaven, God created other souls for hell. Would that make him a Calvinist? Well, the answer is no, because there's a lot more to Calvinism than just that. Calvinism includes a particular view of the atonement, limited atonement, that Christ died only for the elect. Calvinism includes a quote-unquote invisible view of the church. It entails forensic imputation that Christ, that God nominalistically declares people righteous on the basis of, you know, Christ's righteousness being credited to their behalf. 
it requires um, a denial of five of the seven sacraments. It requires a very weak view of the other two sacraments. Denial that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. A denial of the non-elect can partake of Christ in the Eucharist. And, and that bat baptism, baptismal regeneration is either watered down or straight up denied. Um, and I could go on and on. Now, here's the deal. Even if Augustine held double predestination, he wouldn't be bound to any of these other things. There just isn't any evidence that he believed any of those other things. I haven't even really seen anybody try to claim that he believed in most of those other things. Now, I'm not accusing St. Augustine of holding double predestination. I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on that particular narrow element of the topic. My bigger thing here is that the broader picture is that even if he did hold double predestination, he still wasn't a Calvinist. Now, at the end of the day, let's say he did. Well, all that would mean is that he made a mistake in good faith. We talked before about how the magisterium works, and part of it was that the unanimous consensus of the church fathers is infallible. Unanimous consensus, not one individual church father. Now, it's pretty well regarded in scholarly consensus that the pre-Augustine church fathers had a very high view of free will. So, bottom line, even if Augustine did hold to a higher view of predestination, it would just mean, okay, those earlier fathers could have been right, and Augustine could have been wrong. Council of Trent says the unanimous consensus of the Church Fathers has to be followed. Um, Pope Pius IX, in his introduction to Vatican I, took an oath not to interpret Scripture in a manner contrary to the unanimous consensus of the Church Fathers. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the Summa Theologica, said we ought to prefer the teaching of the Church over a Jerome or Augustine or any other doctor. And even St. Augustine himself said he would not have believed the Gospel unless the Catholic Church had taught it to him. So... Bottom line, maybe Augustine got this wrong, but if he did, he would have submitted to the church, and he would not have held to any of the Calvinist errors except for the error of double predestination. Now, there are a few other things I'm going to note in passing. There was a group in the Catholic Church in the 16th century called the Jansenists. From what I understand, they took a Calvinist view of atonement and predestination, but they didn't really hold to Calvinist theology of anything else. They still believed that the way God saved people was through the sacraments and through the church, that the church had a visible hierarchy that you had to be a part of. They believed that you could fall from grace, and, and so on. So they that would have that would have been maybe what you could accuse Augustine of holding, maybe. Now, Pope Alexander VIII, in a papal bull directed against the Jansenists, condemned several of their ideas, and one of them was the idea that just because you find a doctrine in Augustine, you can automatically hold to it, even if a bull the Pope says otherwise. Now, the Pope was not accusing Augustine of being a heretic. Certainly, he believed that St. Augustine was a saint. He, all he was saying is that he was still a man. He could be wrong. And ultimately, you don't have the right to say, you know, I'm going to reject what the Church has passed down and what the Church has clarified to us because St. Augustine said something else. Even St. Augustine wouldn't have agreed with that. He would have agreed to submit to the Church and not himself, like we just said. Now... Ultimately, we. the bottom line is, um, there. now there's a really good article about this by an Eastern Orthodox author named Perry Robinson. Now, he is Eastern Orthodox, so we're not in communion with him, and we're not condoning his church. But, I, what he, but he makes a very good argument about this in his article at Energetic Procession called No Gospel for Augustine, which I would recommend that you read. And the argument that he makes is essentially that Augustine's theology of predestination is consistent with Catholicism. And that a high view of predestination is consistent with Catholicism rather than um, Calvinism. Now, I, I forget if he clarifies this. I, I want to be clear. Double predestination is not consistent with Catholicism. If St. Augustine did hold to it, he was wrong, and the Church has further clarified. But very high views of single predestination have existed in the Catholic Church 
And you do have some freedom regarding where you fall on that philosophical question. The church doesn't necessarily bind you strictly to one specific understanding of it. There is some freedom there. Now, he, now Perry Robinson argues a bunch of different things in this article, but one of the key ones is that Augustine pretty explicitly teaches a view of salvation that is not consistent with an imputed righteousness but an infused righteousness now to explain the difference to you briefly an imputed righteousness says that god declares us righteous basically we're just treated like we did what christ did and we didn't do what christ didn't do whereas an infused righteousness would mean that god actually brings grace into our souls to transform our souls and that itself is actually what saves us and again i would encourage you to go to the article and read it slowly and carefully. I think it's pretty clear that what I'm saying is, in fact, what St. Augustine was teaching. He was teaching that, in fact, God actually makes us godly, and that's the means by which we are justified. So, to give an analogy, basically the way this works is a Calvinist would say, you know, you have a dirty robe, you're wearing a dirty robe, and God throws a clean robe on top of your dirty robe, and he pretends like you don't have the dirty robe on. He just treats you like you have the clean robe. Whereas the understanding of St. Augustine and the Catholic Church would be that God actually cooperates with us to help us clean our robe. We have to allow God to clean our robe, and he cleans our robes so that we can be truly dressed in clean white, and we can truly be um, holy people. I hope that made some sense. Now, one last thing, and I would, again, if you have want more detail on that, I would really encourage you to read, sit down and read that article by Perry Robinson called No Gospel for Augustine. I think it's very helpful. And it really refutes a lot of these Protestant myths about Augustine that aren't really true. One last thing I will quote from Augustine before I move on to the um, end announcements. Quote, No man can find salvation except in the Catholic Church. Outside the Catholic Church, one can have everything except salvation. One can have honor. One can have the sacraments. One can sing alleluia. One can answer amen. One can have faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and preach it too. But never can one find salvation except in the Catholic Church. Now, here's the deal. Um, St. Augustine clearly believes that salvation is connected with membership in a particular institution. Now, someone might protest, well... I'm a Protestant, and I believe that I'm part of the Catholic Church. But the problem is, that's not what Augustine has in mind here, because it's not, let's say that August, St. Augustine meant what a Protestant might mean, that they meant that he meant that, you know, you have to be a part of the universal church of all believers that are scattered amongst different denominations or institutions. Well, if that was the case, how could you have the sacraments sing Alleluia and have, have faith in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and yet not be in the Catholic Church. What would that even mean? And the answer is very clear. The answer is St. Augustine does not have an invisible church ecclesiology. St. Augustine was a Catholic. He was a member of the Catholic Church, and he believed you had to be a member of the Catholic Church if you wanted to be saved, which is complete blasphemy to a Calvinist. Now, supposedly the theologian B.B. Warfield, I think it was, claimed that the Reformation was the victory of St. Augustine's doctrine of the gospel or of grace over his doctrine of the church. I think it's completely false, as I explained, and as that Perry Robinson article explains in more detail. Um, St. Augustine's view of both was Catholic. But the bottom line is, even per, like, some of the better Reformation theologians, like, they know he wasn't really a Calvinist. Because he wasn't. There's just no honest way to read his words and conclude that. He might have been a bit confusing on predestination, but... At the most, he was a Catholic who was a bit confused on predestination. He was not a Calvinist. 
He didn't have a Calvinist view of the church. He didn't have a Calvinist view of atonement. He didn't have a Calvinist view of justification. He didn't have a Calvinist view of the sacraments and so on. Now, again, I know our questioner knew that, but I think a lot of people do need to know that. I think it's a very good question. So thank you to Luke for giving me the opportunity to soapbox about that for a few minutes. So I'm going to briefly conclude by announcing a few different things. Um, number one, we do have a Patreon, which I will link in this video description and which Chris will link in the official podcast episode once we publish it. And um, if you want to donate to us or buy some of our merchandise, that is available at that link, which I will post. Um, by mutual agreement, John Wesley Bush III and I have agreed to delay our debate until mid-February. I'm almost positive the debate is going to be February 21st. There were a few different reasons for that. Both of us wanted a bit more time to repair. Um, the technical issues that I was having this past week really set me over the edge in that regard, but mostly we were both, we both felt that giving it a couple more months could give the opportunity for a higher quality debate, and ultimately both of us respect each other, and we definitely value a high quality debate more than we do one-upping the other one or winning or whatnot. I think that the ideas are going to get out there. The ideas are what's important. And we really feel that we can give a better debate in February than we could right now. So stay tuned for that. I don't believe it will be delayed again. I think that would be very unlikely. Um, it is going to be on Zoom. I will have a Zoom room key and all that stuff finalized soon. But the topic is going to be Scripture is not the only infallible authority for the Christian. I will be arguing for that idea and John will be arguing against me. So please do tune in for that. I think this is going to be a better solo scriptory debate than the previous one. Also, if any other Protestants want to have a discussion or debate with me on any topic, you can contact me on Facebook, or you can email the sequavirtus at protonmail.com email, and I would definitely be willing to set such things up. I am interested in such conversations and debates. Also, if you have any questions for the podcast, um, you have two options to send them. Number one, you can always send them in the Facebook group, which is um, anything but Catholic podcast discussion and announcements group. That is anything but Catholic podcast discussions and announcements group. Or you can email them to sequavertus at protonmail.com and Chris will send them over to me. So um, I think that's it. And... Uh, God bless you guys, and stay Catholic.